Hello again from me, Bruce Whitfield, your host for the third of a series of discussions that we are having about global investing and how to get it right. In many cases, the perceived complexity of investing offshore prevents people from accessing the wealth of opportunity that lies beyond our borders. And while investing offshore doesn't need to be complex, there are some key considerations that can have a big impact on your returns. Right now, you may be faced with some common dilemmas. Should you opt for RAND-denominated funds or invest in hard currency, active versus passive investing, investing directly or using a wrapper, and go DIY or do you trust an advisor? Here to help with your most nerve-wracking predicaments is Craig Scher, the Head of Research and Development at Discovery Invest and Discovery's Head of Legal Services, Harry Joffe. Craig Scher, we're 1% of the global economy, probably less than 1% of the global economy now, which implies that the 99% is juicy and available to us, but it is big and it is hairy. And for many people, it's a really terrifying universe to go into. And there are lots of dilemmas, lots of concerns about investing around the world. What sort of guidance can you give us? Yeah, thanks, Bruce. The global equity market is around $50 trillion. So it really is a big world out there. And as you say, a lot of people are very scared of it. But I'd say that everything's risky until you try it. I mean, learning to swim, riding a bicycle, these things are all very risky. But once you get into it, you see that it's, it's actually not that difficult. One of the biggest mistakes that I think that people may make is actually just avoiding investing offshore because they think that it's risky. I mean, it is a very, very important part of a portfolio, as you say. And I think, I think it is absolutely critical that, that you have a portion of it when doing your saving. I mean, if you just look at some of the numbers, some of our analysis has shown that about 64% of household expenditure is impacted by currency movements. And these are things like the petrol in your car. In fact, the car you drive as well, it's related to the dollar. The, the iPad you're using, the phone that you, you'll do your interviews on, all of this is imported from overseas. And so having a portfolio that actually can keep track with the movements of the RAND relative to global economies is so important. Even maize prices, I mean, the staple food in South Africa is a commodity which is traded globally. And maize prices are determined uh, often by what futures markets tell us is going to happen to maize prices. So we get that point. When it comes to investing and the big decision of RAND-denominated funds versus investing in hard currency, there will be benefits and there will be downsides of both in the complexity of, of global investing. But what's your thinking on it, Craig? Correct. I mean, I think the, there is a big world of global investing that is available to South Africans, even when they want to keep their money in RANDs, as you say, RAND-denominated offshore investing. In that world, the way that it works is you have a portion, you have your money that still stays in RANDs, but is exposed to offshore markets through local asset managers. So you can give it to a local asset manager, and then they will take it offshore and invest it around the world for you. Importantly, your money in that case is not leaving South Africa. You, you still have to, it still comes back to South Africa. It's still payable in rands to you and you're still taxed in rands on the total gain that you get. The other way of doing offshore investing is to take your money and actually apply for tax clearance or use some of your allowance that you're allowed each year and actually put your money in foreign currency, as you say, in hard currency, and that actually stays outside of South Africa. And again, there you can invest in anything almost around the world and you can have foreign asset managers uh, managing your money for you. There's different ways that it's taxed, 
But in that case, your money doesn't necessarily need to come back to South Africa. You can actually transfer it anywhere in the world. Let's get you involved here, Harry Joffe, the head of legal services at Discovery. And the moment one starts introducing new jurisdictions and new tax regions and South Africa's own tax regime, which is getting increasingly complex into the mix, that scares the living daylights out of a lot of people. Should it? Bruce, yes, it definitely should. So I'm going to throw out a whole lot of new words. I mean, us lawyers love to impress people with new words. And the first word I want to throw out is that called probate. And probate is a fancy word, but really all it means is winding up an offshore estate. So I think South Africans will all know, I mean, everyone's had, unfortunately, someone, family member or relative has died. South Africans know there's a complex process and it's quite a long and difficult process when you wind up a local estate. I mean, you have to have executors, you have to go through the master's office, but it gets even more complex now when you have to wind up a foreign estate, because now, as you said, Bruce, there's a different set of laws. I mean, it's what we call a conflict of laws sometimes. So probate means having to actually get your assets offshore wound up when you die. One of the most common questions I get asked is, do I need a separate will for my foreign assets? And again, that shows a whole new set of, of principles then jump out. And there's another fancy word I'm going to throw at you, and that's called forced airship. And forced airship means that, particularly in the European countries, they actually aren't interested in what your will says or what you want to do. They have a set of laws that they apply how your assets in those countries get distributed when you die. So if you're in France and you die and you've got a property in France, your asset goes to your spouse and children, irrespective of what you want to do in your world. So as South Africans, we've got a lot of issues to think about. We've got to think about foreign laws. We've got to think about how assets offshore get distributed if we die. And I mean, tax is a whole different ballgame, which hopefully we'll get to just now. And Bruce, South Africans need to think about this. They need to think long-term in how they invest and long-term in how their estate gets wound up if they die and what planning they do. And I must be honest, I'm going to unashamedly throw out a solution which we like to offer, being an insurance company, in that if you use a wrapper of ours, if you use what we call an endowment policy, which is a form of a life policy, it allows you to nominate beneficiaries when you die. And that means those policy proceeds can pay very simply to the beneficiaries and it takes away the need to do a foreign will because you don't need a will. It simply pays out by virtue of a beneficiary. And it takes you out of the conflict of law problem. Because you've got an endowment wrapper, you don't have to go through the foreign laws in winding up an estate. It simply pays out through the beneficiary nomination. And it's just a way of looking at solving a problem. Instead of trying to look at foreign laws, foreign wills, which are expensive, foreign legal systems, which are unknown to a lot of South Africans, if you use an endowment wrapper, it can almost take you out of a lot of those problems and solve that set of problems. Not everybody, though, Harry Joffe, has got the purest of intentions when they invest offshore. If we're perfectly blunt about it, uh, I suspect that there are very many people who over many years have snuck bits of money out through various means and have decided that, you know what, it's best kept out of the long reach of the law in South Africa. And they think to themselves that they might be terribly clever in doing this. All they're doing, I suspect, in the long term is causing absolute agony for the people who are their beneficiaries. Bruce, I agree with you. I mean, uh, there's another fancy word I'm going to throw out. Uh, nice. Again, the more fancy acronyms we can throw out, the better. And that's called CRS, which is a common reporting standard. And it's been in place for over a year now already, where every country in the world, almost, apart from a few outliers, are having to report 
to every other country, citizens who've got assets in that country or investments. So if you're a South African and you have got assets, let's say in the UK, the UK authorities will report that back to the South African authorities. And we're starting to see that already. So, I mean, it's just a matter of time before you get flushed out and before this information comes out. That's number one. And number two, I mean, we've seen cases already where people are dying and their families simply can't find where the assets are. I mean, it's all very well hiding from everyone, but eventually your family has to be able to locate these assets. And you know, if you die and you've got all these fancy trust structures set up, which no one knows about, well, your family might actually never find these assets. And then thirdly, the other funny thing I always laugh, people go to such elaborate lengths to hide assets and they end up having to invest them in very obscure investments just to hide them. And they actually do much worse than they would have done as they invested it properly in a proper investment, paid their tax, at least it's properly done, whereas they're hiding it under the bed and under mattresses so no one can find it and they're getting no returns. So, you know, there's three things there, Bruce. It's you will be found out eventually anyway, you're making your life so difficult for your heirs. And thirdly, you're probably doing worse off even though you might be hiding from tax because of the obscure investment routes you have to follow. Uh, it's a critical uh, decision to make uh, because it may not become your problem in your lifetime, but certainly it becomes the people you're theoretically supposed to care about in their lifetime. The idea of buying these direct investments versus the, the wrapper products, Craig Sher. Each do their own, I suppose, in terms of what they like. They might like the French uh, rural property as, as a holiday asset, and it may be worth quite a lot of money. But it does add the issues of tax implications, local laws, liquidity problems. I mean, if you were trying to sell a house during COVID, for example, um, in, in February, March, April, May, anywhere in the world, you would have had a huge problem um, getting any kind of liquidity. And it's, it's that sort of thing also that you've got to be considering when choosing asset classes. Correct, Bruce. I mean, I'd say, I mean, your points are all right. The scenario where somebody would want to do something, uh, you know, buy a property in some obscure region, that may be your ultra, ultra high net worth that needs it for some specific reason in their portfolio. I'd say that's just going back to Harry's point, for almost everyone, I mean, the right type of solution is to use a global endowment, which is a South African structure. And even in that case, you can get them that are useful for people that have uh, smaller amounts to take offshore or people who have a lot of wealth and they want to move it offshore. It is just such an efficient structure. And even within a global endowment, you can get some of the best type of investments around the world. In Discovery, we have ours managed by BlackRock, you can get some managed by Goldman Sachs. You have a whole range of different funds researched by some of the best companies around the world. And you really can get exposure to almost anything that you would want. So I think the idea of taking direct investments and trying to make the right type of decision may be right for a couple people. The reality is for the vast majority, it's probably not. So the big debate around the world, and I mean, I was lucky enough to go to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway gathering a couple of years ago, and in the audience was the godfather, if you like, of uh, passive investments, Jack Bogle. This basketball stadium of 30,000 people cheered and ululated for the guy like he was some kind of investment superhero, and Buffett paid tribute to him as the guy who'd saved investors around the world billions of dollars in fees. And the popularity 
of passive investing versus active investing, particularly in the United States, less so in South Africa, does ask the question, especially in low return environments like we've become used to in South Africa, which the best route is to follow? Craig? Right. So, I mean, just a, a few points on that. So, passive investing overseas is, is much cheaper than it is in South Africa, as you rightly say. But just an important point is that there are thousands of passive funds available to people. And the reality is when you have to choose one of those, you need somebody to help you do it. And at the same time, active funds overseas, the costs of those have come down quite dramatically. So really the difference between active and passive, although there is still a difference, the reality is when you actually accumulate that amount of money from in today's age is not that much. It doesn't make that much of a real difference over the long term, I don't think. I mean, it's far more important to make sure that you've chosen the right type of asset class over the long term as opposed to whether you're going to save a couple of basis points. I mean, just to give an example there, I think at the moment, the BlackRock ETF, uh, which is the iShares for the S&P, is pricing at about four, four to six basis points. It is incredibly cheap. It's almost silly how cheap it is. And then there's a discussion whether you should go for that ETF or you should go for the Vanguard one, which may be one or two basis points below that. And the reality is that over time, whether you save two basis points, I mean, if you think about what two basis points really means, over 100 years, that's going to be 2%. So it's a very, very fractional difference that it's making. Far more important to make sure that the money is invested correctly. Obviously, costs are very important, but we shouldn't think that there's like some magic in passive that can solve all the problems. It's important, but it's, it's not the most important thing. It's easy to fixate and it's easy to become obsessed. Yes, you need to make your investments as, as cost effective as possible, but you also need to be choosing quality um, in terms of what you are investing in, because ultimately returns are what matter too. Absolutely. And just one more point. You talk about the difference in active and passive. Again, a very, very important thing is how your investment is going to be taxed over time. The tax rate difference that you're going to have, whether you use, for example, an endowment or you use, you just invest directly, will be multiples of the fee difference. So having it structured correctly, getting the right type of advice is also, I guess, your first most important thing compared to, I guess, the fee debate, which only comes later. Talk to me, Harry Joffe, then about the legal implications of offshore investing and the issue that Craig Show raises here. Well, I mean, Craig, yeah, the tax differences, Bruce, are, are very fundamental. So if you are investing direct, let's say you buy an ETF for a unit trust offshore, then you, of course, are the investor and you are the taxpayer. And that means on your South African tax return, and never forget that, people often go wrong. They think, well, my money's offshore, my tax won't be anywhere else but offshore. And that's wrong because your money might be offshore, as I always say, but you are here. You're in South Africa, you're a South African resident, you're a South African tax resident, and it doesn't matter where in the world your money sits. You're sitting in a tax center somewhere in the Caribbean, you will pay tax here on that money because you're a South African tax resident. So if you own an offshore investment directly, every year on your South African tax return, you've got to report any foreign dividends you earn, any foreign interest you earn, any foreign capital gains you make. And of course, the, the fun part then, Bruce, is you'll earn that in probably dollars offshore. You've got to convert that back to rands on your South African tax return. Now, I think, Bruce, you'll know the rand has been slightly volatile this year. <laughs> so try to convert you know, very slightly. 
trying to convert rands and dollars or dollars to rands on your South African tax return, I can tell you it's not easy. And what I did a, a week ago, I like doing this to our investment sales team, I sent them a SaaS document which does an average exchange rate for currencies over the last few years. And it does it for a whole lot of currencies. So you can actually look at a SaaS document and try and work it out, but it's not an easy thing to do. That's if you go direct. You're going to have to convert and you're going to have to report. If you're in an offshore wrapper, as Craig was saying, a global endowment, if you're in one of these wrappers, the thing is all your tax is paid for you inside that wrapper. So you're not avoiding tax. Tax is still paid, but it's paid by the insurance company in the fund on your behalf, which gives you two benefits. Number one, the rates are slightly lower because the fund rates, I'll just give you a figure for capital gains, for example, is 12%, whereas an individual rate would be up to 18%. So the tax rates in the fund are slightly lower, and in some cases quite dramatically lower than an individual would pay. And more importantly is that the tax is paid for you. So Bruce, I'm going to throw out a word that my grandmother used to use, and I love using it, but it's so expressive. And that word is schlep. <laughs> but schlep is a, a difficult process. So if you've got to pay the tax in South Africa and report it in your tax return, convert it, work it out, try to do the capital gains cults, that's a hell of a schlep, a big schlep to do. If the tax is paid on your behalf already in the fund by the insurance company in the portfolio, in your policy, that takes away all that schlep. So I think the tax is much simpler. Not I think, I know. If you invest directly, you're going to have to pay it yourself. It's more complicated. It's much simpler by going through an endowment wrapper where the tax is paid for you, the calculations are done for you, and that schlep is simply taken away. It's about uh, ensuring that you have one crossing every legal T and dotting every legal I, but also ensuring that you're not spending your time fixating and actually worrying about uh, multiple jurisdictions when it comes to investing and worrying about how you are going to be treated as a citizen. For so many South Africans, Harry Joff, and I'm wondering whether or not people have overreacted or whether or not they've been behaving incredibly sensibly when it is coming to the issues of financial emigration because of South Africa's insistence of everybody who, who has who's domiciled in South Africa but working offshore pays their taxes here after government lost out on many, many billions of taxes with people working in places like Dubai for many years, effectively tax-free, whether or not there's been something of, a, of an overreaction by South Africans to this issue. And uh, I think lots of people have got really panicked about it. Yeah, Bruce. I mean, South Africans love to panic, don't they? There's nothing. They read something on the web and then they panic and they send it to all their friends and the panic just multiplies. As I always say, Bruce, use the web to watch pictures of Liverpool lifting the Premier League trophy. Don't use the web for tax advice. But uh, let, let's break it down. Immigration is immigration, whether it's financial immigration or normal immigration, that's immigration. And where people go so wrong, and South Africans always do this, they think whether or not they emigrate is going to necessarily change their tax status. And there's a very good document by SARS on their website on this. And as they say, immigration is only one of the factors they look at to determine your tax status. So you can immigrate and you can leave South Africa. But I mean, if you've got your businesses here and you've got your house here and you might have a girlfriend or a spouse here or a family members here, you might still be tax resident here, even though you've immigrated. And I think that's the key which we often miss and South Africans often miss, that if you immigrate or not, that's one thing, but your tax residency in South Africa determines whether you'll pay tax here. 
And remember, tax residency depends on two separate issues. There's a time test. So in the Income Tax Act, they give you amount of days you've got to satisfy every year and over five years before you become tax residency act. But even if you don't meet those time tests, you can be caught in the common law definition of what we call ordinarily resident. Ordinarily resident simply means where do you regard your home? Very vague and it's very general. And there's a couple of interesting court cases where the judges used to wax lyrical on where you regard your home. But basically we've had cases where the South African has been out of the country for a couple of years, but they think he's intending to return here and they think his real home is South Africa and he could still be tax resident here. So I think, Bruce, it's very important to look at immigration as one issue and tax residency as another. And then again, just to throw in, the whole concept of immigration is going to change. Immigration as a concept is probably going to be scrapped. So you won't even need to immigrate and you won't even immigrate anymore. And everything is going to work simply on tax residency. And I think that's good because it will bring home that issue is tax residency and immigration are not the same thing at all. And for so many people who've thought themselves terribly smart, domiciling businesses in Mauritius or wherever the case might be, I think Mauritius has been a very popular destination for lots of people seeking to avoid paying their South African obligations. You could be in for a nasty shock. Yeah, exactly, Bruce, you could. So, I mean, if you are seen to be tax resident here still, you might still have to pay tax here. I mean, it really gets fascinating and, and us lawyers love this because now you've got double tax treaties and double tax agreements and there's certain clauses where you can be deemed to be resident only in one country. And then there's anti-avoidance clauses and there's override clauses. I mean, really, we could spend hours consulting with clients. And you can't take a simplistic approach, Bruce. You can't say, well, I'm going to get Mauritian residency. I'll buy a nice villa there, get Mauritian residency, and my tax problems in South Africa go away. Because they don't. It's a question of fact. It's a question of analyzing your structures. And it's a question of ultimately where you are doing your business, where your income is coming from, what your source of income is, and there's a whole lot of factors you've got to look at. Greg Sher, I think there's an awful lot of time that one could spend obsessing about the intricacies and the tricks and the smarts and trying to get one over a tax authority or over an advisor or whatever the case might be. Uh, and if we obsessed as much, I suppose, in building value and growing assets as we did in trying to find ways around the rules and regulations, we might be infinitely more successful than perhaps we are. Yeah, correct. I mean, Bruce, I think the, the most important thing, as we, we said earlier, is just it is very important to get your money, to get a portion of your money offshore, just to diversify your portfolio, make sure your eggs aren't all in one basket. And we just think about the idea that different countries, they have different impacts to global pandemics. They've got different societal and cultural trends, properties, downgrades, regulations, innovations, all these type of things are are so important. And so you want to get your money access to these type of things. And I think, as you say, it's more important to make the right decisions as opposed to, I guess, focusing on these, uh, the minutiae behind it. I mean, just in terms of new opportunities, uh, technology, for example, uh, I think it makes up about a fifth or 20% of the S&P 500 and very little of the South African market. Tesla was up, but it's at 170% over the period. Uh, renewable energy, healthcare, all these things are things that you'd want to get exposure to in your portfolio. And so that's the more important thing to actually focus on. 
It's getting a holistic view. It's understanding that the world is a big and interesting and diverse and fascinating and challenging and huge opportunity. I mean, all of these things, of course, um, are, are critical when it comes to considering the issues. If you had to have a shortlist, Craig Show, the three things as we wrap up today of the biggest offshore investment dilemmas that are actually quite solvable, what are those big three things to consider? Bruce, I'd say the one which is very, very important is not to try to time the currency. As you say, it's, it's something that I don't think anybody can do. You can't, I don't think anyone will know where the rand is going to be uh, tomorrow or the next day. So don't try to time the currency. But having said that, I would just be aware of any behavioral biases that you may have. You know, when the rand gets worse, that's when people start thinking about investing offshore. So I'd say just make sure that you do it, but don't try to time the currency. The second issue I'd say is just make sure you get advice. People make a lot of mistakes by not getting advice and trying to do this themselves. I mean, we spent a lot of time now talking about tax, inheritance, uh, you know, having money overseas and estate duty and all that type of thing. Just get advice. It's probably the, the, the right thing to do. And different geographies have different laws. So that's very important. And then the third point is structure it correctly. Talk about the global endowment. If you can put your money in something like that, it really does simplify your life and uh, takes away, as Harry says, the schlep of offshore investing. Harry Joffe, the three things that you would like us to consider as we prepare to navigate or continue to navigate or seek to repair and restore our, our global strategies when it comes to investing? Bruce, yeah, so there are three things. Number one is the issue around Wills. So, you know, if you've got assets around the world, you've got assets offshore, you've got to have that discussion with your advisors, which countries I need separate wills for. I mean, I had a great question last week. One of my advisors has got a client with a whole estate in Belgium, and they wanted me to find them someone to do a will for them in Belgium. And I can tell you, in the whole of South Africa, I haven't been able to find anyone who can do a Belgian will. So we've had to try and use associate companies in Europe to do it. But you need to make that decision. I've got assets around the world. Do I need a will? Do I need a will in the UK, in the US, uh, Middle East? I mean, Bruce has spoke about Dubai. You know, a lot of Middle Eastern countries have got Sharia law, but non-citizens or non-residents of those countries can get out of Sharia law if they've got separate wills and certain structures in those wills. So it's a very important decision to make. Do I need only a South African will or do I need a South African will plus wills in the other jurisdictions where my assets are? That's number one. Number two is this issue around tax. As Craig said, different jurisdictions have got different taxes and they've got different tax rates. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have assets in Mauritius, Mauritius has got much lower tax rates. But again, you might be in a jurisdiction like the US where if you die, you're going to pay 40% state duties as a non-US citizen. And the UK as well, you can pay up to 40% of state duties. So you always need to be very aware of taxes overseas. And we might know in South Africa how high our taxes are, but when it comes to estate duty, as I've said, you know, our estate duties are a maximum of 25%, whereas the US it's 40% and then Europe could be even higher. So taxes are a big issue. And then thirdly, what kind of wrapper you want to go into offshore? For the average person who doesn't want the complexity and the schlep of multiple walls, multiple tax calculations, multiple tax structures, multiple tax planning, the simplest solution is often an endowment wrapper because the tax is paid for you, the estate planning is done for you, you don't need separate wills, you don't need separate structures, and it can make your life a lot easier. But again, Bruce, I just want to finish off with a warning that South Africans must never think because their assets are offshore, 
the tax problems have gone away and the estate duty problems have gone away. You can often find offshore the tax issues are worse, the estate duty problems are worse, and the conflict of laws makes the state planning much more complicated than we have here. You go into a European country with forced airship or you go into a Middle Eastern country with Sharia law and you could have much more complicated estate planning or estate winding up problems than you ever thought you'd have in South Africa. And that's why a RAPA should be considered by so many people. That's the Head of Legal Services at Discovery, Harry Joffe, joined by the Head of Research and Development at Discovery Invest, Craig Scher. Thank you very much for joining us and shedding some light on what kind of decisions perhaps don't weigh as much as we think and which ones may just come back to bite us where it hurts in the long run. If you're sold on the why of global investment and want to help on the how, navigate to Discovery's Offshore Investing Info Hub on discovery.co.za where you can find a host of practical guidance on investing offshore, including the pros and cons of different investment solutions, structures and strategies.